0: What can they do to you? What can they do to you? They can do whatever they want. They can build a literal wall between you and your family and then put you in prison when you try to cross it. They can ban words that describe your identity from being used by government agencies. They can poison your water supply with lead and refuse to fix it when your children get sick. They can show up in riot gear to your peaceful protest and then charge you with inciting a riot. What can they do to you? They can do whatever they want. They can use vile, disgusting, racist slurs to refer to your homeland, your people, an entire continent. They can strangle you to death on video camera and then walk away without being charged with any crime. They can stand by and watch as storms devastate your island home and the lives of millions of your neighbors and say there's nothing to be done. They can make jokes about assaulting you, about violating your body, and then tell you that you're too sensitive and you really should smile more. They can use scapegoating rhetoric to turn neighbor against neighbor, worker against worker, family against family, dividing those who make natural allies into enemy camps. What can they do to you? On this Martin Luther King weekend, we are reminded that they can bomb your house, assassinate your leader, aim fire hoses at your children, and tell you to be patient with the slow pace of change. They can do anything they want. How can you stop them? Alone, you can fight, but they roll right over you. Alone, you can post angry diatribes on social media. Alone, you can wallow in your own anger and be paralyzed by your fear. Alone, you can descend into hopelessness but with 2, or 10, or 10,000, but with a movement, a resistance, now we're talking. Fortunately, incredibly, gratefully, there are movements for justice, prophetic leaders, communities of resistance, alive and well, growing even. In response to this political moment, in response to the oppression that has always been. Individually and collectively, people are taking action and speaking out against the hatred and violence and incredibly frightening news about exactly what they can and are doing. This has, of course, always been true. We celebrate this weekend the legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., and really we celebrate the movements he was a part of and the and the leader he was. We remember sometimes selectively his prophetic ministry and the difficult, dangerous and ultimately deadly work he did alongside others towards justice and equality in our nation. It's so important that we take the time to remember those people and those moments. The lessons from the civil rights movement and Dr. King's work for economic justice in the Poor People's Campaign are essential to our current movements for justice. And many of the ways people are engaging in justice today and the frameworks for talking about oppression, particularly racism, have changed and shifted since Dr. King's time. In today's movements for justice, there are rarely single charismatic leaders, but instead local teams of organizers taking joint leadership. Via the internet, many voices can offer public perspectives on issues of injustice at the same time and from diverse perspectives. There is an acknowledgement that our various movements are connected and intersecting And therefore, we need people who hold many different social identities to provide leadership and a larger picture of the truth. In today's movements for justice, social media, texting, video, and other new technologies allow ideas and actions to change and shift very quickly. They give huge numbers of people almost immediate access to current events and the ability to gather crowds in moments. Local leaders are organizing people all over the country to block highways and kneel during the national anthem and shut down shopping malls and tear down statues of Confederate generals. Oppression, particularly racism in its many manifestations, and the ways that people are protesting it, is making the nightly news. For some of us, this is a vindication that the realities we have experienced and have been describing for generations are finally being acknowledged as real by those who don't directly experience them. And for others of us, this is a critical awakening, and we see the world in ways we have never been able to see it before. This experience of waking up to the real world around us can be challenging, even bewildering, for those of us with the privilege to not have to have seen it. When we are not the ones most directly impacted by an issue, whether it be police violence or immigration enforcement or climate change or anti-black and anti-Semitic rhetoric, it can be harder to understand the realities of those who are directly impacted. But it is important that we learn how to be companions and accomplices in the struggles regardless. A close-to-home example of this comes to mind. You may or may not have been following recent happenings at our own Unitarian Universalist Association, where long-time patterns in hiring of employees have produced a race-based imbalance in power amongst the national staff. Like many corporations and companies, a much higher percentage of employees of color are employed in service-level positions that are employed in top-level, higher-paid positions of power. This means white employees make up the bulk of the decision-makers and stakeholders in our Unitarian Universalist Association, an organization that professes to value diversity and racial justice. A people of color-initiated campaign to shift this reality has spurred some concrete changes in hiring practices but has also sparked an important conversation around issues of white supremacy in our congregations and communities. And meanwhile, some white Unitarian Universalists have not reacted well to these changes. They have accused these people of color of stirring up things unnecessarily and making a mountain out of a molehill. Many of the critiques from white folks have focused on the use of the term white supremacy to describe this situation. The fact that we are being asked by these leaders of color to use the term white supremacy, even if it makes us uncomfortable, is an example of how things are shifting. Whereas in the past it may have been more common to hear words like white privilege or racial reconciliation in discussions of racial justice, People of color within and outside of Unitarian Universalism are now asking all of us to consider how white supremacy itself is alive and well within our religious home. Not just the blatant forms of white supremacy, white men marching with torches or hanging nooses in trees, but also the ways that whiteness, white culture, white standards and norms are considered superior to other ways of being and doing. I've heard many white Unitarian Universalists express their discomfort with the term white supremacy being applied to us and our communities. And I can absolutely understand the impulse to distance ourselves from those white supremacists in the Ku Klux Klan. We are good white people, liberal white people. We're not white supremacists. But when we hire only white people to our church's highest paid, most powerful roles, or when we accuse people of color who point this out to us as starting trouble, we are supporting white supremacy. So what can be done about it? What do those of us who are white do with our discomfort, our fear, our defensiveness, when realities around us come into clearer view and we are asked to change? And what do those of us who are people of color do to care for ourselves in the midst of this? To make sure that we are not sacrificing our own growth and truth in the work of educating white people. I know that you've had an increasing focus on race and racism here in this congregation, and I'm so pleased that you are starting your first round of the Beloved Conversations program. Equipping a critical mass of folks here with the language to have deeper conversations about race, racism, and white supremacy and the tools to make changes in yourself and your community is so important. And I believe that doing this work in your spiritual home is the perfect place to start. What better place to take risks and do scary things than a community of folks already pledged to walk together, already covenanted to support each other, a community grounded in love and the inherent worth and dignity of all of us. When I speak to folks about why they feel at home in their Unitarian Universalist congregations, the answer is often a variation on a theme. I feel comfortable here. I feel safe here. I can be my whole self here. There are other people like me here. When I walk through the door, it felt like coming home. Often these are folks who've come to us from another religious tradition that did not feel like a home and are overjoyed to have discovered a community of kindred souls. I don't want to downplay how important this is, finding a home, or for folks like me, raised Unitarian Universalists, to have a home that is familiar and comfortable, a place of beloved memories and bright future. But our radical religious communities, our spiritual homes, are not intended to only be places of safety and comfort. They are also meant to be places of growth and learning and change. We are meant to be discomforted and challenged. Our principles affirm that we are together on a responsible truth, search for truth and meaning. When we feel only safety and comfort, when we're wrapped in a cocoon of commonality and sameness, we cannot be stretched into new understandings and greater truth. And really, safety is an illusion anyway, right? A false sense of security produced by our privilege. As the poet Mickey Scott Bay Jones writes, there is no such thing as a safe space. There is, for her, brave space, where we call each other to more truth and love, where we have the right to start somewhere and continue to grow, where we amplify voices that fight to be heard elsewhere. There is brave space. And to do the work of racial justice, those of us who are afraid and defensive must be willing to join those who already exist in brave space so together we can transform our Unitarian Universalist spiritual homes into brave spaces. I also want to lift up the fact that most folks who say that they are feel completely safe and completely themselves in our Unitarian Universalist communities are white folks. The experience of bringing your whole self into a congregation, the experience of feeling completely at home there is not something most Unitarian Universalists of color have had. More often people of color talk about having to split themselves or prioritize one piece of themselves in order to be in our Unitarian Universalist communities. Perhaps the theology is a good fit, but the music never reflects their culture. Perhaps they feel welcomed as a queer person, but constantly experience microaggressions related to their racial background. Perhaps they feel it speaks to their passion for social justice, but never addresses their anger or woundedness from their day-to-day experiences of racism. People of color who make their spiritual homes in Unitarian Universalist congregations often find that sense of home to be a complicated one. Lots of folks wiser than me have written and preached about this for a long time. In an article in our UU World magazine recently, the Reverend, Do- Reverend Derek Jackson writes I was a Universalist before I even knew there was a religious home for my beliefs. And yet I still go back to the spirit of the African Methodist Episcopal Church within which I was raised. I often ache for the music that makes my heart soar, that brings the divine into the room during worship. I miss ministry that is grounded in and speaks to my black identity. I miss a message of hope that is grounded in an understanding of struggle. I miss all of these things, and yet theologically I can be nowhere else than where I am. Many Unitarian Universalists of color have long expressed similar feelings, a deep longing for a shift in our congregational cultures that would allow them to feel more fully at home. Reverend Jackson goes on to articulate changes he would find life-giving for himself and other Unitarian Universalists of color. Weaving the history, cultural references, music, and wisdom of people of color into worship on an everyday basis, not only on special holidays or special services. Making room for multiple kinds of emotional expression, movement, noise, shouts of joy, open mourning. Theology that acknowledges pain and suffering and the need for grace and redemption. Social justice ministry that is also about internal change and personal and communal growth and not simply about fixing the world out there. I would also add that our ways of welcoming could stand to be a little more well, welcoming. For a person of color, or a young person, or a transgender person, or a person with disabilities, anyone who stands out from our typical demographics, it can be just as off-putting to be over-welcomed as to be ignored. This overexcited, in-your-face welcome tells that person that they are being seen for what they are and not who they are. These lessons are just as important for providing welcome to folks who are already a part of our communities as they are for people visiting us for the first time. It is painful for all of us to know that this kind of experience, this feeling of other, in a place that is supposed to be a spiritual home, happens regularly for people in our congregations. We have to be willing to acknowledge these realities, though, in order to address them and make them better. This is not about making our congregations more welcoming so we can court more people of color. In other words, it's not about the hues in the pews. It's about uprooting the practices and culture of white supremacy that are deeply embedded in our structures, even when we don't want them to be. It's about learning to be our very best selves, the most whole, the most human people we can be. Though we often envision our racial justice ministries as work in the larger community out there, we also need to do the work of change within our Unitarian Universalist communities in here. What if our congregations were brave enough to offer what the Reverend Derek Jackson is asking for? What would our spiritual home look like if we were able to meet the cultural and spiritual needs of people of color and also challenge white folks to grow in their abilities to be companions and co-conspirators for racial justice? What if our Unitarian Universalist congregations were places where we could come and learn how to be brave? Last night I had the honor and pleasure to attend the Heritage Ensemble's annual concert honoring Martin Luther King. The music was beautiful and such a tribute to him and to the ongoing work for racial justice in our country. Many of the pieces were deeply moving, but I found myself brought to tears at the very end of the concert when we all sang, We Shall Overcome together. And more specifically, the lines that really got me, that really connected to something raw, deep inside, was when we sang, we are not afraid. We are not afraid. We are not afraid today. There is so much to fear. The things they can do to you, the things they do do to some of us, are terrifying and real. The work to combat them, the work to stay in the struggle to build something different and beautiful is also scary. But in that room last night, singing those words with hundreds of other people committed to the vision of Dr. King and of today's movement for justice, I felt just a little bit less afraid, a little bit braver. What does it look like for us as Unitarian Universalists to be braver? And what are the spiritual resources that we need to access to be that kind of brave? Brave enough to take risks with and for each other. Brave enough to offer each other support and hope in the face of fear and hatred. Brave enough to band together as two, as 10, as 10,000 a multicultural, multiracial movement that uses the lessons of the past and the energy of the present to create a future that feels like a home for all of us. Our task is not simply to critique ourselves and our community until nothing remains. It is to use our prophetic imagination to envision what we could be together, more alive, more vibrant, more connected, more honest, more woke, more forgiving, more truth-telling, more listening, where whiteness is de-centered, where comfort is de-centered, where we seek to turn down the volume of the outside world and amplify voices that fight to be heard elsewhere. Our Unitarian Universalist communities, our spiritual home, should serve to both challenge and grow us, as well as to comfort and cradle us. They can be sites of resistance and sites of rest. We cannot expect to feel safe here always, but neither should we expect to be on edge at all times. Instead, in everything we do here together, we should be practicing the hard work of building the beloved community, in the words of Dr. King, so we can move fortified, restored, and brave into the world that is so desperately in need of fierce and holy love.